Returning this evening to our second scripture reading in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, and verses 9, uh, sorry, 10 and 11. And our subject this evening are the true marks of genuine repentance or sorrow for sin. So we read these two verses once again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of or regretted, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought or worked in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves or demonstrated yourselves to be clear in this matter. And of course the context here is that of the Christians at Corinth and they had been brought to sorrow over scandalous sin that had been tolerated within the church. They had been guilty of carelessness in condoning this sin and Paul had had to write to them and expose their guilt. But he now rejoiced because He had discerned genuine repentance, true sorrow for that sin. Now it had been brought to their attention. And he describes the nature of their sorrow here and why it was genuine. And this is so helpful to us, even if we are seekers or we are concerned for our souls this evening, because it is a wonderful description of what true repentance really is. Now one error that many people have in their thinking regarding repentance is that repentance can be true repentance without sorrow for sin. But that's not really the case. And the apostle here shows us that they sorrowed after a godly sort. And he says, godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. In other words, it's when our our repentance includes genuine sorrow for sin that it will lead to God's forgiveness and the salvation of our souls. And of course, these words here in these two verses they remind us of another important thing, and that is that it is possible to sorrow over our sin, but in the wrong way. They compare genuine sorrow for sin with a sham repentance. And so I have to challenge you this evening from these two verses. Do you have a sham repentance? Or has there really been and continues to be in your life godly sorrow for sin? So I want to think just for a few moments to begin with of what sham repentance is or the sorrow of the world as the apostle describes it here. 
At the end of verse 10, he says, the sorrow of the world worketh death. In other words, even a worldly person who has no real care or concern for God, they may, as a result of the prickings of conscience or troubled circumstances in their life, be brought to sorrow over sin, but it's the sorrow of the world. It's a flawed repentance. And there are four things I'll say about this kind of repentance before we look at genuine sorrow for sin. The first is, it's so often caused by being found out. There is a kind of shame when our sin is found out. We are embarrassed before other people. They frown upon us. We sense that they know that what we have done has not been good. And therefore we regret it. And we grieve over it to a certain extent. But it's not godly sorrow. We do not sorrow because we love the Lord and we are grieved that we have offended him, but rather we love ourselves and it grieves us that our reputation has been stained. And then a second mark of sham repentance is when we are regretful over our sin because of the consequences. It's not that we are particularly disturbed by what we have done, but by the consequences of our actions. That's what Cain was like. We didn't read it this evening, but in chapter 4 of Genesis, after Cain had killed his brother Abel, God found him and challenged him and reproved him for his murder and set a mark upon him and condemned him. And Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He wasn't really sorry that he had murdered or put to death the first martyr of, the, of a believer, but he was sorry because it had brought a sentence from God, a blight upon his life. The ground would not bring forth her fruit abundantly. He would toil and sweat he would be a vagabond in society. And so often we may, be, uh, we may yield to such a spirit of sorrow, but we're sorry for the consequences, not for the act. Thirdly, often this kind of repentance or sorrow for sin is attended by hard thoughts of God. We see that illustrated in the life of Pharaoh. When those plagues were brought upon him and his people in the land of Egypt through the instrumentality of Moses, we see that there were occasions, there were glimpses of regret in the life of Pharaoh. And we read that passage in which the frogs came up and plagued the homes and the houses and the bedrooms of himself and his people. And clearly he didn't like it. And so he calls Moses and he says, I've changed my mind. I repent of my determination to hold on to these Israelite slaves. I will let them go. There was a mark of change. Repentance is a change of mind. But it's clear from what unfolds in that passage that Pharaoh's 
sorrow, if you like, or regret, his willingness to change course was only temporary. And he hardened himself against the Lord and determined, once the frogs had gone, to continue on his path. And how often that proves to be the case when people express remorse and regret for some sinful behaviour. It's only a temporary uh, uh, response. And when the trouble, the trial, the disappointment passes, then they continue in that path. Let me challenge you this evening. Has the Lord laid his hand upon you? Has he brought some trouble into your life? Has he troubled your health? Has he disappointed some of your plans? And uh, at that moment you became sensitive to the Lord and you took stock and reflected upon your path and your attitude. And for a time you were willing to acknowledge your sin. But now life has become more smooth and once again you've hardened yourself as Pharaoh did against the Lord. You're not really concerned as to what he thinks of your life. You want no help and no guidance and you're unwilling to follow him and yield to him. Your repentance, even though perhaps there were glimpses of hope that you were humbling yourself, it's now vanished, evaporated as life has returned to normal. And we do wonder in this pandemic, there are some perhaps who have struggled and suffered particularly as a result of it. And they are sensitive and they realize that all is not well between the human race and God. And yet, if a vaccine is found and life returns to some semblance of normality, how many will simply forget those thoughts they had heavenward and they will put their nose back in the trough of this world and its sinful ways and just pursue the path they always did. And then, lastly, godly sorrow, sorry, the sorrow of the world will land the soul in despair. There may be some remorse and regret, but it will not lead to salvation. Judas recognised that he had betrayed innocent blood when he betrayed the Saviour. And he threw down those 30 pieces of silver in the temple. He confessed his fault and error. I have betrayed innocent blood, he said. But it was not genuine repentance. There was part of him that was, uh, was troubled. Doubtless his conscience overwhelmed him. But he never truly sought the Lord's mercy and grace. And he went out and hung himself. The sorrow of the world leads to distress and despair and ultimately, in some cases, to death. But let's turn and think this evening of godly sorrow. The sorrow that the Apostle Paul rejoiced in here because he recognised it in the life of these Corinthians to whom he wrote. He says, I made you sorry with a letter in verse 8. And there's a lovely parallel here because although this was the word of Paul to Corinthian Christians, there is a sense in which the gospel itself is a letter written by the hand of Jesus Christ. 
And when we receive that letter, and when we hear the terms of that letter, it makes us sorry. If the Lord works in our heart godly sorrow, we can say, when I heard the gospel, it touched a raw nerve, it exposed my guilt and my folly and my predicament. I saw my wretchedness and helplessness and I was moved to true sorrow on account of my sin and my past life and I was ready to change. So what is godly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow, first of all, is sorrow which God approves. The sorrow for sin which God approves of. And the first thing we can say is that God delights when he sees sinners who grieve over their sins out of love to him and not because of dread before him. That's true godly sorrow. Not because we fear the consequences of our sins. Not because we sense that hell will be our destiny if we don't change. But we now see our God in all his goodness, his mercy, his wisdom, his boundless kindness toward us. And we say, it grieves me that I should ever offend him or stand opposed to him. We see our sin as God sees it. A little later, we're going to sing John Newton's hymn, one verse of which reads like this. Since I at times can hardly bear what in myself I see, how vile and foul must I appear, most holy God, to thee. It grieves us to think that the God we now admire and desire the friendship and the kindness of should be frowning upon us on account of our sin. Do you have godly sorrow in that sense? That you admire the Lord and you long for his kindness and his grace to be extended toward you and it grieves you that he should look upon you and realize and uh, despise and hate some of the things that you have said and thought and done. Godly sorrow is to mourn that we have broken a law that is perfect and good and pure. Godly sorrow is a recognition that we have despised and disobeyed a gospel that has come from God and that is gracious, that we have offended one who sent his own son to die for sinners like us, and yet we defied him. It, godly sorrow is a recognition and a, a sorrow that we have grieved a God so good and so glorious that we have slighted and spurned Jesus Christ, whose love is so tender and boundless. Godly sorrow, then, it is to sorrow in a way which God approves. But secondly, it is to sorrow towards God. Godly sorrow is with our heart and our desires towards God, not with self in view, but with God in view. The sorrow of the world is a sorrow that says, I need to be sorry because it will affect me if I don't. 
But godly sorrow is a sorrow that is based upon God. It's with God in view. King David in Psalm 51, when he mourned the sin of adultery and murder and deceit, said against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He saw God's holiness and God's justice and it grieved him that he had defied such a God. In view of his goodness and his mercy and grace, his heart was toward the Lord, drawn to the Lord. He wanted to be at one with God, reconciled to God, at peace with God. And he wasn't. And if we are truly melted within to sorrow for our sins after a godly sort, it's because we desire to be at one with God, to be embraced by his love, to be destined to be a member of his family, to be found in his kingdom at last. Do you have such godly sorrow? The third mark of godly sorrow is that which leads us to God. Not just that we have God in view, but it brings us to God. Martin Luther tells how when he was still ignorant of the gospel of grace, the word repentance was repulsive to him. And yet, once he understood the revelation of free forgiveness, when he understood that he didn't have to earn his salvation, he didn't have to work for it, he didn't have to subject his body to beds of nails and to... Uh, extreme fasting, but simply to come and rely upon the free grace that was presented to him by Jesus Christ, understood that he could be forgiven because the Lord had laid upon his Lord and Saviour all his sin and iniquity. Then repentance, he says, began to charm and attract him. This is all the Lord requires of me that I believe in his name and in response to that faith I turn from all my sin in all its pollution. There is an error today. It's always been around. It's an old error really that true repentance means that we must reach a certain point in our feelings of wretchedness and horror about ourselves. But repentance is not really about feelings of course, godly sorrow will move our feelings. Sorrow has to be feelingful. But godly sorrow is more than that. And the apostle in, these, in verse 11 here, he describes seven characteristics of true godly sorrow. We're not going to look at all seven. I want to pick three or four and just explore what the apostle means. Because they draw to our attention something more of what genuine repentance is. And the first word he uses in verse 11 is carefulness. He said, you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Carefulness, it means diligence forwardness. You were so anxious to do it. Once I had touched that raw nerve 
and exposed the sinfulness of your attitude, how anxious you were to put things right. If you can postpone your sorrow for sin, if you can delay or put off turning from it, it comes short. It's not genuine, godly sorrow and true repentance because true repentance is a pressing thing. It's something that we have to deal with. It will never leave us. Our conscience so overwhelms us that we say, I cannot find peace until I have made my peace with God. We set about putting right the wrongs that we are conscious of, putting away all sin with utmost diligence. The person that says, well, I know I ought to change. I know that there are certain habits that I ought to give up. There are certain places that I ought not to go and I ought to get round to these things. They haven't yet reached that point where the Apostle Paul would describe them as having true godly sorrow for sin. We run immediately to God to settle our account. Repentance is the kind of repentance that cannot bear to be in debt. Now, over the years, I've met one or two individuals that I've done business with, and the moment you give them their bill, they want to write the check. They say, oh, I'd rather just get things settled. I don't want to leave it until next week or the week after. And then there are others, they will wait until the last day, 28 days, six weeks, two months, whatever, But when it comes to our dealings with God, if our sorrow is after a godly sort, we shall, as it were, want to get out the checkbook of repentance there and then. We will want to settle our accounts with the Lord. Lord, whatever is necessary, whatever costs are are arisen, I'm ready to discharge them. If this must be forsaken, if that friend must be abandoned, If that old habit must be put to death, then Lord, with your help, I'm ready to do these things. That's godly sorrow. Even the appearance of sin to one who is full of sorrow makes us uncomfortable. The carefulness the apostle speaks of here is a carefulness that we would associate with someone walking past a fast-flowing river. And they know that danger lurks. And so they act with carefulness and caution. They want to be at a distance. And the true godly sorrow for sin that the Apostle speaks of here is when we say, I don't want to get too near to that worldly environment. I want to keep well away from those things that might draw me in like the rapids in a river into peril and danger. I don't want to be sucked into my old sinful ways that once I indulged in. And then we have another word here. What clearing of yourselves? What clearing of yourselves? The apostle here probably includes here that the Corinthians were anxious to show where they hadn't sinned, where they hadn't been guilty of, 
They didn't want to be accused of something that they hadn't done. It troubled them and they wanted to be, make it very clear that they no longer wanted to be associated with sin in every, any way. But of course, it must include distancing ourselves from all suspicion, from any suggestion that we now are happy and careless towards sinful things. It troubles me when I hear of people who profess to be Christians and they are trying to go as close as they can to worldly things. You see, the Bible tells us that the world is at enmity with God, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, that the love of the world means that the love of the Father doesn't dwell in us. And anyone who has this clearing of themselves attitude will say, I don't want to live to give any suggestion, any suspicion that I now love those things that are displeasing to my Lord and Saviour. I want to be separate from them, apart from them. I do not want to be identified with those things. We confess all occasions of fault. We demonstrate that we are anxious to do what's right. That's the spirit of a Christian. We say, Lord, teach me. And show me how I should live, how I should think, how I should behave. Search me, O God. Try my heart and my reins and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want nothing to do with the ways of death. Do you have this spirit this evening? Has God so softened your heart and your conscience now that the least suggestion that your, the coat of your life has been smudged by sinful association troubles you. And you wouldn't want to be like that because you want to show your love for the Lord. And then let's look at one more word, the word zeal here. What zeal? Zeal can be used both in a negative way and in a positive way. In a negative way, Zeal, when it comes to godly sorrow, is a zealous determination to put to death all the remnants of sin and sinful tendencies in our life. But we can think of it also, even when it's to do with godly sorrow for sin, in a positive way. We have a zeal to serve the God we once despised. Paul knew what he was speaking about here because he had experienced this same zeal. He says, writing to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 23, he said, people heard only that he, meaning himself, which persecuted us in times past, now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. Paul reflected upon his life and he knew that he had been a persecutor of the church. He had delighted in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. He'd aided and abetted those that cast the stones and caused his death. But now Paul, filled with sorrow and true regret for his past, shows that sorrow by his zeal to serve the Lord and to preach 
that faith that once he destroyed, to build up the people of God that once he hailed into prison. He wanted to repay the debt of love that he owed. And true godly sorrow includes this kind of zeal, a zeal to serve the Lord. Let me say to you, friend, this evening, if you regret your sin and you want the Lord to forgive you, but you have no readiness with boldness to serve the Lord, no readiness to sacrifice your life here upon earth in order to please him and to repay that debt of love and gratitude to him for what he has done through his son in redeeming you as a sinner from lost eternity, then there's something defective about your repentance because repentance includes this zeal. What revenge? These two go together, really. What revenge, the apostle says. We desire to make amends for all that we have done in the past to hinder the cause and the honour of God. That was true of Thomas Bilney, the famous reformer. Now, Bilney had been arrested for preaching Christ and he was taken down to Westminster, hauled over the coals of the authorities, threatened with burning on account of preaching the gospel which was regarded as heresy. And over the course of the weeks and months, these authorities got to him and they pressured him. He had a friend, Bishop Tunstall, who was of the opposite opinion, but he didn't want to see Bilney burned. And so he worked his way into persuading him and eventually Bilney yielded and he recanted and he declared that he had abandoned the faith which he had been preaching. And so he was, instead of being burned at the stake, put in prison. But there in the prison, he was really a prisoner to his conscience because it grieved him immediately that he had been coaxed and urged in a moment of weakness to declare that he had denounced the faith of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He had no peace. Eventually he was released and for a year he had no peace. But then it's it's declared that after some months he regained his composure, but also his zeal and his revenge and determination. And that faith that he once preached, but had then recanted of and renounced, he was determined to preach again, and he would preach it with such fearlessness and with such boldness until he was rearrested ready to be burned for that faith that he in a moment of weakness had denied. Such was his godly sorrow for that moment of, uh, of yielding that he preached in the fields, banned from the church buildings, and he preached Christ and the gospel of free grace until he was arrested again, taken to London, and this time the authorities would give him no mercy. He would be burned, 
But on the night before he was burned, he took his finger, and he held his finger in the flame until it burned down to the bone. And they said, why are you doing that? He said, tomorrow I will have to be burned in my whole body, but I'm determined this time not to yield. That was the zeal that flowed from his sorrow for past sin. Do you have such godly sorrow, friends? This is the kind of sorrow which the apostle says here is works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, not to be regretted. If you would be forgiven, saved, brought into lasting and eternal fellowship and peace and reconciliation with Almighty God, then it must be through Jesus Christ who died for sinners at Calvary. It's as we yield to him. It's as we trust our soul to him, but we do so. Whilst at the same time, filled with true godly sorrow for our sin, a sorrow that the Lord delights in, a sorrow that draws us to our God in love, a sorrow that is marked by carefulness and by zeal. May the Lord grant to each one of us and to every seeking soul amongst us this evening this sincere, godly sorrow that leads to repentance and true salvation. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank thee for the word of the living God. We thank thee for the example of these Corinthian believers Do stir our hearts. Lord, if there is anything sham and defective about our regret on account of our sin this evening, then remove that kind of regret and work within us true godly sorrow and true repentance, that repentance that will lead to salvation. Make us sincere. Make it heartfelt. Make it real. And grant that we may forever make war against our sin and grieve over it because of our deep love for our saviour the lord jesus christ we ask these things in his name amen